0: Hello, I am Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. You can go to my website and social media for more about the work I do other than the radio and information related to grief and loss. In particular, on Facebook, I I share a lot of things that uh, are about different aspects of grief and loss, and all the links are on the Good Grief page at Voice America. Today I'm talking with Isabel Yurikov-Stenzel Burns Isabel is a bereavement social worker at Mission Hospice where she counsels and leads writing groups for those who are grieving She's lived with cystic fibrosis for 43 years and received a double lung transplant 11 years ago Isabel has been an active leader for various cystic fibrosis and organ transplant organizations for two decades Isabel and her late twin Anna published the memoir, The Power of Two, and served as international patient advocates in her mother's country, Japan, which led to the creation of a documentary film of the same title. Isabel's lectured around the country on topics such as living well with illness, end of life issues, and organ donation, including a TEDx Stanford talk in May 2014, which was also wonderful. For fun, Isabel plays the bagpipes to celebrate her lung donor. What instrument is there that takes more air? She lives in Redwood City and is happily married to Andrew Burns. And I did just want to add, too, that she and I are uh, in the middle of some planning. We've been asked to be part of a conference on the art of letting go in November. So it's very exciting to have this time to get to know each other better, as well as uh, let you get to know her. Welcome to the show, Issa.
2: Thank you so much, Cheryl. It's great to be
0: here. Great to have you. And and I felt as I was um, watching the film, reading the book, watching the TED Talk, we could really have about four shows here. Uh, we could talk about cystic, cystic fibrosis and sharing that with your twin. We could talk about uh, organ donation. We could talk about grief work. We could talk about... Um, Uh, lung uh, transplant, you know, it just went on and on, the number of things we could talk about, and I'm sure we'll touch on all of them.
2: Yes, well, that was sort of my goal of my book, and that was to represent a life story that had so many different components, so Uh that I could say that I wasn't just defined by the cystic fibrosis or the transplant, I was defined by my twinship as well, and my professional pursuits, as well as my cultural background, my mother being Japanese and my father being German. So I appreciate you saying that about the book and the film, because I intentionally tried to um, perhaps model to other people that we are so much more than the few labels that we put on ourselves.
0: And I think that's such an important (laughs) message for people who maybe haven't faced uh, huge things in their lives. Um, mm-hmm. such as you, that really you do also keep living, you're, you're still a full human being in grief mm-hmm. or in illness. Or uh, That was, uh, it, it brought back, of course, my own experiences living with a long illness, certainly not anywhere near as long as yours, but uh, of course my wife was sick eight or ten years before she died. And just that real surprise that life is still very, Vivid, And maybe uh, for me, it was more vivid uh, Mm -hmm. after than before. So I appreciated how you captured that. Yeah, thank you. Um, So I was trying to put myself in your shirt. Let's start with cystic fibrosis since that's how uh, your journey began, being born with that illness in a way Uh, and having a twin also born with it. And and would that be a given if you were an identical twin that both twins would have cystic fibrosis? Maybe you can yes. share a bit about the illness in case people don't know much.
2: Sure. It is a, a recessive um, uh, genetic disease. So both parents carry a copy of the gene without knowing it. And then they have a one in four chance of having a child with the disease. And, of course, because my sister and I were identical, we share the same genes and therefore we both had the disease um it's cf i call it cf for cystic fibrosis is not that uncommon it's also not very you know it's not as common as cancer or aids or um even alzheimer's things like that but it is the most common genetic disease um in uh, in caucasians now my mother being japanese it was pretty rare for her to carry the gene so that helps me just accept the fact that this was my fate <laughs> for mm. a Japanese woman to be carrying the CF gene um, and then come to America and meet my father. Uh, most, Actually, most uh, CF patients are Caucasian, and many of them have German background because that's just where the gene evolved from. So um, this is not a disease I would pick. It's a very difficult disease to live with um, from the earliest memory I have, I remember coughing, I was constantly congested, I had a really hard time gaining weight, and back when I was born, um, my parents were told that I'd be lucky if I lived to be 10 years old, and so it was a universally fatal disease, and and now it's much more managed, it's much more of a chronic disease, so Mm. I have friends who are in their 40s and 50s and even 60s, and we're all... uh, thankful for the extra time we've been given because of the medical advances.
0: And yet that means growing up, in a sense, expecting death, doesn't it? Yes. I, yes, I, don't, exactly. I don't know what your parents did or didn't share with, with you and Anna about that, um, right. but I'm guessing they did. you did know that at some point in your early life, that you weren't expected to live very long.
2: Yes, I think I was around five years old when my father sat me down. And for cystic fibrosis, you have to do these medical treatments, uh, inhalations of uh, medication and then percussion on the chest or vibrations on the chest to help loosen the secretions so that you can cough them out. And uh, we hated doing those treatments, as, as most kids do. With Would, <laughs> sure. And so we, we protested when we were around five, and then my dad sat me down and said, look, For every treatment you miss, it's one day less of your life. Now, for a five-year-old, that's a really hard concept to understand, but uh, a few years later, I did go to a cystic fibrosis summer camp, and I could witness firsthand the the fact of what happened to some kids who didn't do their treatments, and, and as well as some that were just unlucky and a whole lot sicker, who did do their treatments and still died, so it was very obvious to me from a young age. Um, I think by age nine, I was having a lot of anxiety about death—that uh, uh, that I was going to die young from this disease—and that's when I really started to, how can I say, be awakened, <laughs> realizing that this was the life I had, and I had to make the most of it. And even as a young child, I was very capable of of grasping and uh, being aware of the preciousness of my life, no matter how long or short.
0: This might be a good mo- moment for you to share this, the, the piece from your book about uh, Cheryl. Mm-hmm. And, um,
2: that was about age six for you? Yes, that was age six. I went into the hospital my second time in my life, and this was like a five-week-long hospital, stay. So it was very, very long and cumbersome um, because of the infection I had in my lungs. So let me let me start reading this passage from my book. It's from the early days, so I have sort of a childlike tone, but here I go. Um, As the weeks passed, the hospital began to feel like a foreign land, distant from our family and friends. My parents tried to visit often, but the drive was just too long for them to come every day. Sometimes it felt like they were forgetting about us. When our parents did visit, they brought only food and books. Later, I learned that Mama didn't want us to associate being sick with being spoiled and lavished with gifts. We were thrilled when our neighbor Sue visited us and gave us a whole market bag full of candies, toys, and coloring books. One day, we met a girl named Cheryl. Her mom pushed her wheelchair into our room and introduced her with enthusiasm. Cheryl was 10 years old and also had cystic fibrosis. Anna and I gazed at Cheryl. Under her pink, snooky pajamas, she was emaciated, and her tiny frame sagged in the wheelchair. She was wearing a massive green oxygen mask. A heavy green tank sat between her chicken legs. Her hair was stringy and wet, and I could see droplets of sweat on her forehead. She gazed at us, expressionless, as her chest shook vigorously from her struggle to breathe. Her toes hung over the edge of the chair's footrest. They were strangely swollen, round, and blue. We later learned about clubbed fingers and toes, a classic sign of a lack of oxygen and a very typical of kids with cystic fibrosis. That evening, Anna and I were making our rounds of, on 7 North. I could see that Cheryl's room was an isolation room for really sick kids. and the dimness of the room's light, I could see her mom sliding a lubricated tube down her throat. When we asked the nurse about it, she explained that Cheryl had become too weak to cough and her mom was helping to suction mucus from her lungs. A few days later, as we had walked the halls, I noticed that Cheryl's room was empty. Anna and I approached Sally, our favorite nurse. We asked where Cheryl was because he wanted to see if we could play. Sally crouched down so we could see her pale face and stringy, long black hair at eye level. Her tone was serious. She put her warm arms around each of us and said, Cheryl went to heaven last night. Anna asked what that meant, and Sally explained that she was with God now and that she wasn't here anymore and that she had gone to a better place. I didn't understand.
0: And what I know about working with... Kids and grief is kids don't understand that right. way of, of looking at death, a better right. place. <laughs> you know, that, that I, I've um, my kid kids were uh, one was a teenager, the other was two and a half when my wife died. And actually, they dealt quite well with just the facts of death. Uh-huh. Uh, but, the, but the sort of euphemistic approaches to death were mm-hmm. completely confusing. Right. You really nice. captured that well in that moment. So that's, was that your first experience of losing someone? Um, I, I know from, uh, you know, uh, reading and watching the movie, how many, many losses you had in your life. But was that, that the first time that you yeah. directly experienced death?
2: Right, and I wanted to I wanted to document that by writing down those memories because it was very vivid. Even though I didn't uh, really understand what going to heaven meant for a six-year-old, I knew that this was serious. I knew that um, Cheryl was very, very sick. I had the images in my mind, and for me to write them out and kind of explain in a child's tone uh, how hard it was to grasp what had happened. Um, That was very helpful for me. But yeah, this was the first experience of many more to come that I uh, lost peers with CF. And also,
0: we were just talking about uh, your father sitting you down at five and Mm -hmm. talking about uh, introducing you to the idea of death. This is not long after that. So you kind of uh, had immediate experience not long after being introduced to the idea. Verbally,
2: yeah, and I think that as I got just a little bit older, I mean Cheryl was ten. We, my sister and I, went to cystic fibrosis summer camp, and at that time we started to learn that the median life expectancy for CF kids was quite quite young, and so we had this concept in our minds that we were going to, you know, die when we were sixteen because that was the average lifespan, and then later as medical advances came about, it was 19, and we said, okay, we have three more years, and it really wasn't until we were much older that we recognized that those statistics are really damaging. (laughs) We Mm -hmm. had to believe that they were just population-based statistics, and for me as an individual or Anna as an individual, our survival was either zero or one. (laughs) Our numbers (laughs) didn't matter. We were either going to make it or not and uh, to not get so focused and fearful of, um, of life expectancy. It, it can really mess up your mind.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I know from living with my wife's diagnosis for, you know, a relatively long time, that um, on the one hand, it um, made us very aware and alert, very right. awake. Yes. And then on the other hand, uh, we had to learn to... Walk with uh, a lot of fear sometimes, mm-hmm. but but also when you don't, when someone says you're going to die and then you don't, there's there's a kind of um, a friend of mine with uh, with AIDS actually. When when mm-hmm. he didn't die of it, like everyone else, he didn't know what life was about. It's it's emotionally sort of confusing in a weird way. Did right. you ever experience that? Yes. Kind of, I, I think, oh, it I, looks like
2: I'm going to live now. You know. Yes, I, I actually think that I uh, experience that every day today. Like I, I got my um, driver's license renewal in the mail just a month or two ago, and I was so shocked. Like, wow! I've lived another ten years or however long it was, and I'm getting this again, and I have to take a photo again, and that means I'm I've aged. So I got really excited about that, that potential that I'm still around. <laughs> uh-huh. um, and also, I, I will talk a little bit more about this later, but um, for the listeners, I want to be clear that I lived with cystic fibrosis until I was 32, and then I received a double lung transplant. And I remember uh, I went through a very difficult end-of-life experience, really uh, releasing my emotional awareness and just getting into a fa- a, a sort of um, a survival mode where mm. all that mattered was for me to breathe. And I, 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 I don't consider my life with CF as suffering, but I do consider those final weeks as pretty intense suffering, shortness of breath. And so when I finally um, physically felt like I, I died, I, I ended my natural life, and then I was put on a ventilator and then was transplanted and then woke up when the doctor was by my bedside, the first thing that I thought of was like, oh, man, I have to go through this again someday. And it was sort of this disappointment because those last weeks were so hard. The Mm. struggle to stay alive was so hard, but... Of course, br- briefly after that, I realized, wow, I'm, I'm still here, and this is incredible. So right now, today, I would say my overarching um, emotional state is one of gratitude, gratitude mm. for getting older, for having wrinkles, for needing <laughs> bifocals, because I, I never, yes. ever expected uh, to be this, this age.
0: Well, and that's very familiar to me. You know, when people are bemoaning their age, I can't relate. Uh, <laughs> you know, because I just knew so many people who, who died young. You reminded me of something I heard once. I guess, I think it was a nurse talking at a Stephen Levine workshop or something. And she said, you know, the people who've had a near death experience because they wake up really grumpy. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> because, because of just what you're talking about, that, yeah. that sense of, oh, God, <laughs> I'm, I'm back with here. this hard stuff. I'm still here. Uh, and then, <laughs> well, and then hopefully yeah. <laughs> hopefully, um, people, as you did, kind of move past that into a right. uh, deeper appreciation for being alive. But yeah. uh, we don't want to leave out that part uh, because mm-hmm. that does kind of tell us about what it really is is like instead of what we fear.
2: Yes, Exactly. And, well, and I think that it, it's helpful to keep in mind, um, you know, one of the chapters in my book is called The Miracle, that just waking up is a miracle. And yes. for me, just taking uh, a deep breath and playing my bagpipes or swimming, it's t- I, I, I can't emphasize enough to the listeners out there, what a profound miracle it is um, for everybody, but in particular for me, because I'm breathing with somebody else's lungs.
0: Yes. It's time for a break now. Listeners, take the few minutes to go to my host page, connect with me. All the links you need are there. And you can find Isabel Eurico Stenzel Burns at www.thepoweroftoomovie.com. Back in a few minutes. <laughs>
1: Your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. If you think you've seen online TV before... Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. Mm-hmm.
0: Welcome back. This is your host Cheryl Jones. I'm here with Isabel Stenzel Burns, who along with her identical twin sister Annabelle wrote a memoir about their life with cystic fibrosis called The Power of Two. And they were also the subject of a really, really wonderful documentary by the same name. So I wanted to talk about your relationship with Anna because you started with the same genet- genetics and yet you did not have identical experiences, obviously, um, with cystic f- fibrosis. And as I was reading, I was thinking um, you had that common place, that connection, which may be sometimes imprisoned and sometimes was a real balm. Um, and I won- I wondered... How you you know that was always your experience? So I don't know how you would exactly answer how it impacted you because it's just part of the whole picture. But I do get the sense that was so central to everything you experienced. I wondered if you could talk about that some.
2: Yeah, sure. And I realized I wrote. Uh, I mean, I just read a section of the book with a uh, with lots of uh, plural pronouns: we, we, we. Um, And that is because Anna and I often went into the hospital together, not always, but most of the time. And yes, it's hard to imagine what my life would have been like if I wasn't a twin. But I can firmly say, Cheryl, that I would probably have died when I was very young. Hmm. Um, And that is because Anna and I developed such a fierce symbiotic relationship, meaning we kept each other alive. We even competed um, we competed over how much mucus each of us could cough up, uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, how, who could tolerate longer treatments, um, and that kind of competition really kept us going, um, who could swim faster in the pool, for example, and that really helped us. But also, more than just the physical uh, kind of um, teamwork, we also uh, supported each other in ways that I don't think anybody else could um, replace. We were each other's therapists. We were able to tell each other everything and anything. We could empathize and feel compassion for the other because we knew exactly what it felt like um, to feel sick or to feel the pneumonia or the chest pain or things like that. Um, But on the other hand, there were distinct differences. For some odd reason, my sister was born with one of the classic uh, symptoms of cystic fibrosis, which is a bowel bowel blockage, and I did not have that. Mm. So she always felt like uh, she was the sicker twin, and she had a big scar on her belly, and I didn't, and I was lucky. And so she, and she did have more physical symptoms than I did, uh, off and on throughout our uh, our our youth, um, but she, I think, had a greater complex than I did. So there was the competition which helped us, and then there was the competition that I think hurt. And it, luckily, we, one of the blessings of being a child with a chronic illness is that we had a lot of parental figures growing up that helped to guide us and teach us um, what ways to help ourselves. And so A social worker once said, you know, you have to live separate lives. You have to learn to differentiate and find your own strengths and your own identities. And that, along with my mother's guidance, really helped us kind of become separate individuals. It was a long, painful process, but I think that if I hadn't done that, um, dealing with uh, losing Anna would have been a whole lot harder.
0: Mm, for sure. Well, yeah. I was also aware as I read the book that I, as I went along, differentiated the two of you mm-hmm. more and more. By right. the end of the book, I really saw the difference in your voices. Good. That uh, was our intention. <laughs> yeah, no, it really came through, and that, and there was... Um, how would I describe it? She seemed very fierce to me. Yes. In in some way. Is that part of what you're talking about when you say uh, you wouldn't have been alive without her, that she kind of brought a fierceness to your – or do you think it was kind of symbiotic that you also –
2: symbiotic? Yeah, it was Uh symbiotic. I mean, I don't – I wouldn't describe myself as fierce in any way. I was often the follower. I was often the sweet twin, and Anna was the more outspoken – Twin, um, but I think she taught me to be stronger, and um, because there were two of us i I think we often got what we wanted because
1: <laughs>
2: the, the two are more uh, i guess more intimidating than just one <laughs>
1: A powerful
0: voice well i was I was also um, you know your family was. Um, so present in, in the book, and I was trying to put myself in their shoes as well because, um, you know, as a parent, double the work for one thing. Uh, mm-hmm. there, there's a lot of work, obviously. I, I was really glad you, you um, were so explicit about the work it took. Right. to To stay alive, not just from you, but from everybody around you, right. and um, just the impact of that on everyone in the family, but there's a kind of f- fierceness to the love then, too, I imagine.
2: Yeah, yeah, I mean, my story is a kind of a screaming example of how each individual is a byproduct of many, many, many people in our lives who Um, allow us to live. And I I mean that literally for me, both my parents who who did the treatments, the medical treatments for us, and then eventually my husband who really has kept me alive uh, through supporting me and helping with treatments. But yes, I I mean, I think that uh, if it was just Anna and myself living this life, we would have died earlier too. We needed a village. And I think that's the case for everybody with an illness. Um, And we have to have the courage to kind of branch out of our safety, our little comfort zone. And we struggled in our teenage years to kind of depend on others rather than Mm. depend on ourselves because we thought nobody can understand uh, how gross this disease is or nobody can um, love us because of this. the, the, the burden of the treatments and so on. And it took a lot of growing and a lot of um, self-acceptance to finally allow these friends and, and ultimately partners into our lives to give us, you know, the, the power for, if you will. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, this may be a little bit of an
0: odd segue, but it's it's about really being in a community of people who have to uh-huh. help each other. That part of your book about, about Katie... Um, mm-hmm comes to my mind right now. Can you share that?
2: Sure, sure. And just to provide some context, I think one of the most pivotal growing experiences in my life and Anna's life was attending a summer camp for kids with cystic fibrosis and finding an illness community where we weren't the only ones dealing with this crazy disease, but um, finding mentors and, and peers that could teach us to give us, give us the skills to live the best life we could.
1: Mm. So
2: with that, I will start reading um, from my book again. So this is an evening where we got to camp for the very first time when we were 17, well, the very first day of our probably fifth year of camp. Um, once in summer, one week of summer, we would go to the CF camp. And we arrived for the first day, and we realized that one of our good friends wasn't there. So I'll start reading here. That evening, we marched to the camp pay phone and called Katie's home. We got the answering machine and heard the recording of Katie's rough, congested voice saying, we can't come to the phone right now, so please leave a message. Beep. Hi, Katie, it's Anna, I replied, we're at camp, just wondering where you are. Hope you're not in the hospital. Give us a call here. We miss you. That evening, the camp musicians entered our cabin without the energy and laughter that usually characterized the first night of camp. Even in the dull cabin light, we could see a sadness in Doc Harwood's eyes. He leaned his large bass cello against the wall. Girls, he said, I'm afraid we have some bad news. Katie's mom had gotten our message and called the camp that evening. Katie had died three weeks earlier on July 9th. She was only 17. Karen, our best friend, bowed her head, and a few moments later, I saw her tears start to fall. Tears welled up in my eyes, too, and my body began to quiver uncontrollably. In an instant, a room full of teenage girls was crying silently. The strum of acoustic guitars began and merged into soothing chords. I felt Denise's arms embrace me. She hugged my bony shoulders as she softly hummed the melody. Bob Flanagan's strong voice cried out the poetic lyrics of Bob Dylan's I Shall Be Released. Words about a man who cannot be blamed, who cries out loud, who anticipates his fall and expects any day his release from oppression. The words hung in the air like mist from our nebulizers. Katie had finally been released, freed from this cruel illness that brought labored breathing, convulsive coughing fits, blue lips, and vomiting after meals. The mood was somber after the musicians left the cabin. Silence and grief married as we sat now, dry-eyed. Then, moving mechanically, we started our treatments. Finally, Karen took her nebulizer out of her mouth and said, Which one of us is next? I don't know, Issa whispered. The hum of the machines drowned out her voice. Karen spoke up. Well, Katie didn't even make it to the life expectancy. It's 19 now. The life expectancy of people with CF had been increasing significantly over the last decade, thanks to advances in medical care. Guess I've got two more years to go. Don't say that, Karen, Issa cried. You've got to have hope. Those numbers mean nothing for you. They're just statistics. Median life expectancy means half of us will live to be over 19, and just half of us will die before we're 19. You've got to beat the odds. Issa was repeating Dr. Robbie's lecture, trying to persuade Karen that she shouldn't give up. Yeah, I put my nebulizer down and went to sit on Karen's bunk. We both were wearing the flamingo t shirts we had painted for everyone in the cabin. I reached for her can hand. Karen's eyes red and swollen looked deep into mine. We're gonna beat this disease as long as we have each other, I said. I wanted to have hope I wanted her to have hope. I needed her. So that was a chapter written by my sister Anna. Mhm. Yeah. So
0: that brings us I think to to talk about, you know, I I was noticing every time you said my book and I mm-hmm. um because you wrote that with her. Yeah. And the and I imagine there must have that the that the because you were so uh, connected by your illness and experiences and both of your lung Lungs having been transplanted, you know, and being, I think you said in the book, soulmates. Am I right? Yeah. yeah. So the loss of her, I just have to imagine, was so mighty.
2: Yeah, it has. And this whole issue of um, personal pronouns, for many, to- for many years, I mean, Anna and I grew up, like, sharing what I meant. So if somebody said Anna, I would turn my head because... They probably wanted me, too. <laughs> or eventually, my sister got a, a... I had a dog for um, about eight years, and my sister would tell everybody about her dog, but it wasn't her dog. It was my dog. <laughs> and so we would get... we just sort of seamlessly um, share ownership of everything. And, and so it took me probably about six months to switch from our book, We ours, um, and and to mine, I uh, not us anymore, but symbolically us because of sort of I feel spiritually very connected to Anna. But it, it still feels strange for me to when I'm talking in the narrative voice to use I all the time, especially describing my past, which is like you said, so intimately connected with Anna.
0: Yeah, I have a a close friend who is a twin, uh, identical as well, and her twin died. So I've had a lot of chance to hear about that experience. And I do think it's very unique, Mm -hmm. the the loss of a twin. And then as I was reading your book, I was trying to add on the the special nature of what the two of you had to deal with. That would, of course, impact all that, too.
2: I do um, attend a wonderful organization that offers support groups called the Twinless Twin Support Group International, mm. and uh, they have a group once a year in California, in Northern California, and I really enjoy the group knowing that I'm not the only one that sort of finding my own way as an individual after living with a twin, but I do feel actually rather grateful compared to the others in the group because I recognize that with my illness and Anna's illness, we actually had 41 years to prepare each other to lose one another. And that kind of training and openness uh, to the possibility of one of us dying has saved me. Um, I was looking and very consciously interested in bereavement and loss years before Anna died. And I think it was a, a way of preparing myself as well as, you know, um, making sense of all of the other losses. All of the other losses. That, yeah.
0: That's a very, that really stands out for me because, uh, you know, I, I sort of think of it like this. You can't be prepared for loss, but you can prepare for it. Yeah, and and the preparation does matter a great deal, right? Um, right. So I resonate with you on that—that that you yeah. were you were um, actively participating in in thinking about that and feeling it, and uh, and that that does stay with you in in the actual grief. Mm-hmm. hmm
2: And so I I feel um, rather than this artificial separation. That many twinless twins feel. I feel like a, a conscious gratitude for the time that we did have. And I mean, mm-hmm. Anna was 41 years old. We weren't supposed to live past 10. And so it was really a miracle. She received two double lung transplants, she was extended. Her life was extended by 13 years. And most importantly, Cheryl, I think the practice of writing, um, writing the book together was a huge goal to be able to document our lives as twins and to kind of show the world what twins are capable of, um, how we are capable of uh, this deeper form of life-saving love. Mm -hmm. But Anna, for the second edition of the book, actually wrote a goodbye letter, Mm a goodbye chapter, Mm -hmm. and and it, it basically says, I've lived the fullest life any human being could live, and I have no regrets. And what yes. better gift could anybody ha- give their survivors than to tell us explicitly that it's okay, she completed her life.
0: Absolutely. And when we get back, it's about time for a break, but when we get back, I do want to talk about how very substantially uh, organ donation, the the donors of your lungs, increased the time you did have together. Yes. I, I just think that's such a... Um, important thing for people to hear hear about. Um, I just got my driver's license renewal myself yesterday, and okay. there was the box, and I was pretty sure I checked it, but I was so aware of checking that box. Good, uh, you know, because they're you. just as. Uh, we'll talk about why people hesitate, but for me, especially intersecting with with um, experiencing your story, there was no other. Choice to make. So let's yeah, talk about thanks. that when we get back. Okay, um, thank you. and and listeners, um, as usual, spend the time going to my links at Voice America on the Good Grief host page, and to find out more about Isabel Yuriko Stenzel Burns, you can go to www. dot Back after the break.
2: The Healing Whisper airs live every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Health & Wellness.
1: Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones.
0: Welcome back to Good Grief. My guest today, Isabel Stenzel Burns, uses the experience sh- experiences she's had living with cystic fibrosis uh, with her twin who also had that illness to inform her work with grieving clients. She does hospi- hospice work and does writing workshops Um uh which she calls writing the loss which i think is a wonderful way to talk about writing about grief and she's an advocate for research on cystic fibrosis and organ donation uh especially growing out of her, her and her sisters having be- his sister having between them three lung transplants um so, and so so i wanted to start this section talking about that because if if you if If you read the book like I did, it's such a dramatic thing when suddenly breathing is not difficult. In both of your, you know, that story was kind of tandem at different times. You both experienced the worst possible problem with taking a breath Mm -hmm. and then um, having your breath for the first time in your lives. I I couldn't even imagine that.
2: Mm -hmm. Right. I was even thinking this morning coming up to my office, uh, Mission Hospice is on the third floor, and uh, the exit is closest to the stairs, and so, of course, I'm thinking, ah, should I take the stairs or the elevator? And part of me is like, of course, take the stairs. It's so easy. There's nothing but a little bit of, you know, achy muscles towards the top, but <laughs> breathlessness is not an issue, and, uh, that has been my mantra since I, I've had transplant is that if I can do it, I should. <laughs> so that's a little aside, but I can't, I can't really articulate in words how incredible it is to go from barely having enough air to blow out the candles on my birthday cake, barely having enough air to sneeze, to now playing the bagpipes. And uh, my lung capacity is well over 100% of normal. And I'm just, I'm so grateful. Um, So my, as I alluded to earlier, I, uh, people with cystic fibrosis have chronic lung infections, which makes the breathing more difficult. And then there came a point in time where the lungs get more and more damaged. And for me, when I was 32, I got sicker and sicker. Um, to the point where I started to go into respiratory failure. And um, that sort of breathlessness is like no other. Um, Luckily, our minds have a way of numbing ourselves with a Mm -hmm. high CO2 that I just started to fade away. Mm -hmm. And that was my very precipitous decline, whereas my sister's decline was much slower. Um, She had gradual lung damage and gradual infection, and then got onto the transplant list and waited quite a long time, about um, two and a half years, and then got called and started to learn to breathe again, um, and started to swim and hike and jog and do all kinds of things. Um, The hardest thing was that we were no longer identical twins. (laughs) Ah. We sort of fixated on that. We're now different, and we had Mm. to accept being different a nice uh, allegory, I guess, to our, our being different individuals as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe, it, it's very... Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Go right ahead. It, it's, just, it's just been such, uh, you know, most people, uh, how can I say, I, I lived most of my life with cystic fibrosis yearning and wanting so badly to be normal, to be like everyone else, to be able to go to a job in the morning and to be able to stay out late and come home and, you know, repeat the, the life at work. And, and people tend to, you know, begrudge that sort of routine and the work is kind of a chore, but actually it's a privilege if, you, if you're healthy enough to work. It is such a, a gift. And so now I have that life and working and so that, every day. That has
0: remained for you then, the sense yes. of
2: preciousness. Yes for sure it's a it's a value deeply rooted in all of my cells
0: I think it would be a good moment for you to um, read from your book uh, about the the um, transplant
2: sure sure so this is i I sort of mentioned this earlier that I started to go into respiratory failure just For some reason, I just was not getting better despite all of the antibiotics and so on. So I will start with um, what my sister wrote. She wrote from her observations of watching me go through this. For a moment, there was immense peace in the room. The night sky outside the window was dark. There was a soft drizzle of February rain tickling the leaves of the trees outside. A few stars peered out through the wood clouds. A gentle breeze swayed the flowers in the garden outside the window, like the night itself was exhaling. It was quiet. For what seemed to be hours, we sat there, Andrew, my husband, seated at one side of the bed holding Issa's hand and I at the other, our sniffles muffled by the humming sound of Issa's BiPAP machine. The moment embraced us with dread and beauty. Issa was dying, dying, dying. No way, I can't believe this. This happened. What happened? There's so much to left to do together. What about our aspirations to hike, travel, write a book together after our transplants? I always envied her. Was this some cruel justice that I was meant to live with new lungs and she wasn't? I felt sick at the thought of ISA dying without ever having experienced life without CF. Would God be so cruel? Issa turned to her side and began to cough. I stepped away. After a few seconds, the coughing became a shallow, wheezy, empty exhalation. Then silence. Andrew and I watched. More silence. "Isa," Andrew said in a loud voice. No response. He peered at her and noticed a small stream of blood oozing out of her mouth. Oh, my God, get the nurse. He reached for the emergency call cord and yanked it from the wall. I ran to the floor, flinging it open and shouting as loud as I could, HELP! Within minutes, the room was filled with a dozen medical personnel hovering over Issa's limp body. Bright lights were flicked on, a crash cart wheeled into the room, and alarms beeped, all while a voice repeated over the intercom, Code Blue, Ground Floor, Room 41. Andrew and I were escorted to the corner of the crowded room by a nurse. You need to step aside. Isa, Isa, I shouted over the commotion. We're here. Hang in there. Can she hear me? She began to speak louder, loudly with a fervor I hadn't heard for days. It's okay, she called out. I'm all right. This is not a big deal. I'm fine. I'm okay. Then she became confused. Am I having a transplant now? The doctors worked over her, pulling her tube, pulling out tubes, syringes, measuring this and that. I noticed her hands were a deep magenta. Twins, twins, we're twins, she continued. We're writing a book. I shouted back. Yes, we are twins. Hang in there. We're right here. Tears streamed down my cheeks. My muscles trembled like I was seizing. Andrew and I held each other, terrified. He sobbed. Oh, my God, it's happening. No, 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 please, God, no. I began to hyperventilate. I saw Issa's face turn a deep purple. Her hands and legs began to writhe and flex. She's dying right in front of me. A few seconds later, Issa's whole body began to contort like she was riding a wave. Her legs flew back and forth wildly. Whoa, she cried out. This is amazing. This is beautiful, she giggled. It was as if she was flying somewhere far away, admiring the view. Amazing. She was crossing over. Then she called out, Bob Flanagan, Bob Flanagan, as if she saw him and was greeting him. She laughed. Ooh, it's so bright. A respiratory therapist working on her yelled, Isabel, stay with us. Don't look at the light. Stay here, sweetie. I was trembling. Panic swept over my body like a torrential rain, and I felt faint. You need to step outside, the nurse said again. It must
0: be such an experience to read that what happened to you from the outside like that
2: yes <laughs> i i't I don't, I don't know how much you remember about that um, yes, I remember very vividly the the noises, the clatter. I don't remember fading away, but I remember the noise of people being in the room. you know they're not kidding when they say the the sense of hearing is the last to go um, uh-huh. but i remember uh, um, I remember this extraordinary spiritual. Experience of seeing the bright light and feeling absolute ecstasy, as if I was going down the top of a roller coaster. That's how I describe it best. Like just, uh, just a joy, um, and, and it really soothed my fear of dying completely because it was, it was all okay.
0: Mm. And then you did receive a transplant, obviously, yes, at the very I, last I, possible moment, it seemed exactly, to me. we had hours to le- <laughs> left
2: to live.
0: I, I feel as if we have to say right now um, just how vital it is that people um, become more willing to be organ and tissue donors. DonateLife.net is the website you're recommending for people to yes. go get more educated
2: about it. Yes, correct. Correct. And a lot of people have heard of organ donation and, and maybe um, sort of intellectually support it, but have not taken the time to sign up to be an organ donor themselves. And I think a lot of that is a natural sense of fear that if I sign up, something might happen to me. I think being half Japanese and doing a lot of organ donation advocacy work in Japan, that culture has a big uh, has a big impact on willingness to confront end of life planning before it actually happens. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, you know, I encourage people to really get educated. The hardest thing is when people say, "Oh, I can't be a donor because I'm too old, or I'm I have a chronic illness, or I've had cancer." Well, my sister um, after. Cystic fibrosis all her life, and diabetes and two transplants, and cancer, which actually took her at the end, she still donated her cornea and was eligible to do that. So there there's um, there's kind of no excuse. I can make you not an organ or tissue donor.
0: I, and I think um, it it feels to me, you know, we could spend another hour talking about hurdles. Mm-hmm. Uh, but just listening to people, I feel as if one major one is kind of being um, not trusting the medical community, mm-hmm. being concerned that that uh, somehow the need for organ donors would um, mean someone might cut their life off too soon or something. But right, as I right. understand it, there's a there's a lot of protection in place around those oh. issues.
2: Definitely. I mean, when you come wheeling into the emergency room, the last thing doctors do is go through your wallet and look for the pink dot or whether you're, licensed, you're registered as an organ donor. They focus on saving your life. That's their job and that's their Hippocratic oath that they took. And so they will do everything possible to save you. But unfortunately, with some brain injuries, uh, the brain swells so much that um, you can't keep, you can't prevent, you can't heal somebody who is brain dead. But you can't use that tragedy to help others and do something good um, after death.
0: Yeah, I was quite moved by your descriptions, well, especially in the film, but also in the book, your descriptions of the families and what a comfort it was to them to know that people were living because they
2: made that choice. Right. Because it takes
0: such a powerless, helpless situation and makes it, redeems it a little bit.
2: Yep, exactly. There's nothing that can bring my donor back um, to be with his family. But by me writing about him, by me um, becoming an advocate for organ donation and telling people his name, his name was Xavier Cervantes, um, by dedicating my book to him, he's still very present. And uh, that's what I love most, going back to the writing process is, just being able to write about somebody and, and describe them and, you know, talk about details of who they are brings them back to life. And I think that my donor family has shared um, appreciation that this has helped their grief tremendously.
0: And it must mean so much to them how tremendously you have, um, how you have used the gift. Mm. Uh, that's that's so clear to me how, how much you've honored your donor in your living, yes. and that must mean a great deal to them.
2: Yes, yes, I um, that is my
0: intention. <laughs> yeah. Thanks so much for being here today. I am so looking forward to our conference in November. It's yes. going to be amazing, uh, The Art of Letting Go. I'll be talking about it on the show, so listeners, um Keep keep your ears out for that. Um, next week, I'm I'm going to re-air uh, Anna Elizabeth's interview. She was here February of 2015. She wrote Digging for the Light, and um, her work is Five fa- Facets of Grief. Um, and then the following week, join me when Cheryl Durkot, author of Being the Grown-Up, joins me. And that'll be a great interview. She wrote a book to help people who are trying to support their parents through illness and death. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation.
1: Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief.